My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more and if it's for you, sign up. They were just such an integral part of my growing up and I was I was that perfect audience, the angst and whatnot. And the music even still today, a lot of it still takes me right back to that same place in high school. I can imagine myself sitting on the, the, the bus on the way to school ignoring everybody, listening to my angry, angry music. That angry, angry music belongs to Korn, spelled K-O-R-N, an American new metal band that has amassed a cult following since they formed in the 90s. To this day, man, I, I think Korn holds a special place because while they were new metal and everything, and yeah, they did the rap rock type stuff, and they... they they did a lot of the really heavy vocals and things. Man, they did some really weird out there stuff, too, that I think pushed the boundaries of music and what people were doing at the time. Just what a 14-year-old boy needs. An outlet, somebody who speaks to you. You know, you have a lot of feelings, and you need to let them out. And sometimes they're soft, and a lot of times they're angry. Yeah, you know, their songs helped me through a lot, especially with quarantine. Their song, Good God, really helped me get through that. So... Yeah, that's one thing about Korn is they're really, really relatable. You can really relate to what the singer Jonathan Davis is talking about in his songs, and that's what I love about them. Beating me, beating me down, down into the ground, screaming so sound. Beating me, beating me down, down into the ground. When you think of Korn, you might think of the 90s metal band, a raucous explosion of angst and anger. Or Korn might conjure the image of a summer barbecue. Maybe you imagine bright yellow ears grilled and buttered and eaten straight off the cob with potato salad and hot dogs on the 4th of July. But the past, present, and future of Korn is far more complicated than either of these impressions led on. Descendants of the Maya living in Mexico still sometimes refer to themselves as corn people, and it's not simply metaphorical. The crop has been a staple of their diet for almost 9,000 years, and it's an important origin story. But the kind of corn farming that sustained the indigenous peoples of North America for millennia is not the same kind of corn farming that consumes 96 million acres of American land today. It's not the same corn that makes the United States the largest producer of the crop in the world, or that receives billions of dollars in government subsidies every year, or that has turned the once-rich grassland of the Midwest into the industrial corn belt, a vast monoculture with weak, pesticide-ridden soil. Corn can be turned into a staggering array of products. It can be used for food as corn flour, cornmeal, or grits or used as animal feed to help fatten hogs, chickens, and cattle. You can find it in ketchup and cheese whiz and candy alike. And it can be turned into ethanol, high fructose corn syrup, or even bio-based plastics. It's cheap and efficient, and at this point, the world, not just America, relies on it. This week, we unpack the role that corn plays in our ecosystem, economy, and the experiences of farmers. We start with a story about organic corn being fed to livestock, then we dive into the world of ethanol and learn why it may not be the answer to our energy needs. Next, we explore the complicated politics of corn legislation and how it affects farmers. And we'll learn about the spiritual history of corn and how people are keeping that history alive today. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and 3 
Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. First up, Sasha Cohen speaks with two farmers about improving the diets of livestock. A whopping 36% of the United States industrial corn yield goes to animal agriculture. So when we eat a hamburger, a chicken nugget, or even an egg, we're often, in some way or another, eating corn. This system has faced a lot of criticism for many reasons, definitely way more than we can get into here. But one of the central critiques is that industrially farmed corn makes for fatty, unhealthy animals. Animals that need to be pumped with antibiotics to make up for their poor diets. I talked to a farmer who's trying to do things differently, for the sake of the land, his animals, and the quality of meat he sells to consumers. My name is Sean Stanton, and I'm the farmer at North Point Farm and Blue Hill Farm. At North Point Farm, his farm in western Massachusetts, Sean raises pigs, cows, and chickens. While his cows are entirely grass-fed, his pigs eat a variety of food, including hog feed made up of corn and grain. But the corn they're eating doesn't come from the industrial corn belt in Iowa. Instead, he buys his feed from a small farm in upstate New York. It's organic, it's full of nutrients, and it's a lot more expensive than conventional hog feed. There are things that one might consider advantages to the uh, mechanization and scale of industrial agriculture in terms of the amount of people that are needed and bringing the cost of food down. But then you get into the whole conversation about, well, are we paying the true cost? And what about the environmental costs of industrial agriculture and the lagoons that overflow into the creeks and destroy the, you know, all of that stuff. And you don't pay that bill when you buy your 99 cent pork chop or whatever it is. That's just not factored in anywhere in the cost of producing that product. A pork chop from Sean's farm will definitely cost more than 99 cents. Because in a sense, you're footing the environmental bill up front. Sean buys his hog feed from Cold Springs Farm, a family-owned farm run by Sumner Watson, who specializes in creating organic feed mix for livestock. The feed includes some of his own crops and some grains that he sources from other organic farms. So when you buy feed from Sumner, he may not have grown everything in it, but he can give you a three-year history of each field where the feed was grown. Here's Sumner. Being organic, what? I can't, we can't use antibiotic. So how are we farming and how are our animals thriving without antibiotics or vaccinations? I spoke to Sumner on the phone because he really doesn't like to use computers. So that's why the audio is kind of grainy. And you also might hear his grandchildren playing in the background. My customers pay me thousands upon thousands of dollars to put vitamins and minerals in their grain mixes for the purpose of building immunity in their cattle. I can build immunity in these animals with the right vitamins and minerals at a therapeutic level. That's a key part of this thing. And it applies to humans as well. It has, we got to talk therapeutic. All of history of the earth, that's how the animals survived. The humans, we, we're, all our, our requirements are the same as a cow. And it begins in the gut 
but you get the right immunity, you can ward all this stuff off. 30 years ago, when people were starting to go organic, the worst detractors to the farmers that scared them were the vets. The veterinary people, they scared the farmers not to go organic because they had them thinking all their animals were going to die and all this. Because the vet income was 50%, 50% or more of their income was from selling drugs. To be a certified organic farm in the U.S., you can't use any antibiotics, which in some ways is a good thing. But it's important to note that Sean's farm stopped being certified organic a few years ago because he decided that he didn't want to eliminate pharmaceutical drugs altogether from his farming practices. Instead, he chooses to use them, but very sparingly. The thing that's tricky with organics is that it's very rigid and it's consumer-driven, right? It's not really as much about animal welfare as it is about the consumer. And it's also reactionary in a way. It's a reaction to, you know, the systemic use of antibiotics in, as a growth stimulant. So you have that problem. And then the reaction is to say, okay, you can't use any antibiotics or any uh, dewormers or any of this or any of that. And... Unfortunately, that means that if you have a sick animal, you're basically sentencing it to death. And that, to me, is unfortunate. There's a strong parallel between how livestock is pumped with unnecessary antibiotics and corn is showered in chemical fertilizer. When big corporations and respected institutions tell farmers they need a certain product to be successful, they often listen. Sumner grew up on a non-organic farm in New Hampshire, and he's seen firsthand how harmful these corporate influences can be to both the land and the people working it. My family settled in 1640, so that they've been farming there since 1640. But my father did every stinking thing that Cornell or the University of New Hampshire said to do. It ended up just putting him in debt and chemical farming. Not only does chemical farming make farmers indebted to the fertilizer industry and deplete soil of life and nutrients, but chemical fertilizers are also a known carcinogen. My father, my grandfather, my and two uncles, Uncle Robert and Uncle Ed, they all died from prostate cancer. And so when I was 50 years old, I uh, was diagnosed with prostate cancer. You know, it used to be my job when I was a teenager to uh, mix acrazine. Acrazine is a very, very, very fine powder that you mix with water and it killed the weeds on on our silage corn. And they still approve acrazine to this day. In many agricultural schools across the country, students still learn that the best way to farm is by using chemical fertilizers. I live near Cobleskill, New York, and there's an ag college, SUNY Cobleskill. One day I'm driving down by one of their fields, and the guy is on a tractor in a hazmat suit spraying the field. What does that tell you? He's in a hazmat suit. <laughs> spraying his the field at a, on a public college. I mean, to me, that was a, such an oxymoron-type thing to even look at. It was just ridiculous. It does seem oxymoronic. 
Why should the cultivation of land be something that is chemically dangerous, something that we need to protect ourselves from? But in another sense, the farmer in a hazmat suit image seems kind of emblematic of this country's relationship with agriculture. On a macro level, we don't see ourselves as creatures living within the environment. We don't strive to create some sort of symbiosis with the natural world. Rather, we see ourselves as elevated above the environment, using every weapon we can to tame, control, and dominate the landscape that fuels us, no matter the cost to human and non-human life forms. For our next story, we take a look at how cars across the country are consuming corn. Here's Ryder Bell talking about corn ethanol's use as a fuel. Ryder reported this piece in collaboration with Kevin Chang Barnum. In the early 20th century, alcoholic fuels like ethanol were considered by some to be the fuel of the future. The 1908 Ford Model T could run on ethanol, though people debate whether or not that was intentional. Today, according to the Alternative Fuels Data Center, 98% of the gasoline used in America is blended with ethanol, almost all of which comes from corn. Part of the motivation behind that use is environmental. For a long time, ethanol has been touted as a climate-friendly fuel that reduces smog and produces cleaner emissions than petroleum. Liquid fuel is a vector, okay? It's like electricity. How do we deliver that kind of energy in the best and most renewable way possible? you know, or the least carbon-intensive way possible. That's Bill Kovarik. He's a journalist and professor at Radford University who has written extensively on the ethanol industry. He co-wrote the book, The Forbidden Fuel, A History of Power Alcohol, which first came out in 1982. I recently talked to Bill to learn whether ethanol will ever reach its promise as the fuel of the future. It turns out there are multiple reasons it hasn't become our main fuel source. One involves intense lobbying by special interest groups. There's this constant warfare going on between the oil industry and the grain industry. Another comes down to the historical price of gasoline. Why is it the primary fuel? Well, in a lot of places, um, it's just easier to stick a straw in the ground and suck out a bunch of oil than it is to go through all of the you know, hard work to grow corn and to harvest it and to mill it and then distill it and all of that. But perhaps most crucially, while it is cleaner than gasoline in many ways, corn ethanol has its own set of environmental problems. For instance, corn grown to be used for ethanol is generally dependent on nitrogen fertilizer. High use of nitrogen fertilizer can cause nitrate runoff that pollutes surrounding drinking water and ecosystems. Despite the perception that corn ethanol is a renewable fuel source, a number of environmental organizations and food system advocates, like the Environmental Working Group, think we can do better. And so does Bill. I don't see why we have to be wedded to these old technologies at all. You know, whether it's, you know, the way gasoline is produced on the one hand as a fuel or or the way corn ethanol is produced on the other. These just strike me as archaic. Bill points to newer technologies that he thinks show promise. One of those is electricity. Another is cellulosic ethanol. Cellulosic ethanol is the same chemical compound found in corn ethanol, but it can be made from more sustainable sources, like grasses or unused materials from a corn harvest. If you have an older system and you want to have a transition, biofuels can be part of the transition. And ethanol from corn can be part of a transition to healthier biofuels. 
For decades, people have been looking for the next fuel of the future. That fuel could lie in new types of ethanol, or it could lie in something entirely different, like electricity. For now though, most cars will continue to run on a combination of gasoline and corn ethanol, two fuel sources that, despite a contentious history, are now bound together in our gas tanks. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break. My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to Cheeselandia.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Next up, Sophia Lebowitz explores how agricultural subsidies affect corn and the uncertain future for Trump-era payouts. According to the USDA, government subsidies made up 40 percent of all agricultural revenue in the United States in 2020. One crop in particular receives more funding than any other. Corn is the number one subsidized crop. That's Anne Schechinger. She is a senior analyst of economics at the Environmental Working Group, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to protecting human health and the environment. I spend my time at EWG studying farm subsidies and agricultural policy. So in the U.S., agricultural subsidies are essentially federal or state programs that send money to farmers. Over $116 billion uh, has been spent just on corn subsidies. So a huge amount of money just since 1995. Uh, these subsidy programs are supposed to be for really, you know, dealing with unexpected things that happen to farmers. Although in practice, a lot of times... Farmers are actually paid farm subsidies for things that we can control and do expect. So it's a little bit uh, tricky what they're meant to do and what they actually do. Commodity subsidies in the U.S. really started during the Dust Bowl as a way to help farmers who had been struggling for years. And now, as we know, um, the federal government spends billions of dollars a year on multiple different subsidy programs. Around the early 2000s, what really ramped up subsidies to corn was our ethanol policies. So the Renewable Fuel Standard was established in 2005, and that encouraged the growth of corn ethanol. And that's really when corn subsidies took off. For commodity crops like corn, it has become even trickier since 2018, when President Trump started giving more money to farmers. The Trump administration established the Market Facilitation Program, which was essentially to send money to farmers in response to China's retaliation against you know, the trade war that Trump created. And then last year in 2020, uh, there was another ad hoc program called the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. And we're seeing over $20 billion um, have been spent out of that program. In your opinion, with the new administration, what do you think will happen with these programs that Trump had put in place during his presidency? 
we know that the market facilitation program is not going to be renewed. We're still kind of waiting to see what's going to happen with the coronavirus food assistance program as well. But something we know from a long history of farm subsidies in the U.S. is that once you start subsidizing farmers at this kind of level, it's really hard to take that funding away. Do you see a future in which subsidies can be used for, I'm not going to say good because I don't think it's black and white good or bad, but where subsidies can be used to kind of change change the food system, maybe for, for positive reasons? There's a direct link between farm subsidies and environmental and public health impacts. So it would be really good in the future. And we've got a farm bill coming up in 2023. If we could transition some of this farm subsidy money into conservation instead of just giving it directly to farmers for nothing, essentially. In our final story, Maya bernstein Shallot talks to Yura Vallejo and Jonathan Barbieri about spiritual relationships to corn in their home state of Oaxaca, Mexico. So in La Feria, you will see beautiful and colorful corn, red corn, purple, black, yellow, white, amazing and all kinds of seeds and things that you have never, ever seen before. That's Yera Vallejo, describing the scene at the Feria de la Agrobiodiversidad, the Agrobiodiversity Fair, an annual celebration in Oaxaca each November. During this harvest time, families from all over the state travel to the Feria to exchange corn seeds and more. The seeds form the foundation of campesina diets in the state. Oaxaca has eight regions, and there are different Uh, languages. So in this one event, you will see communities coming from different uh, regions in the same state of Oaxaca that the first language is not Spanish. So you will see people speaking Zapotec, people speaking Mije, Mixtec, Chinantec, uh, Wabe. So the colors, uh, the languages, you know, it's like an explosion of everything. And it's beautiful. It's, uh, it's amazing. And something that it is very important is that they come to this one place to exchange not only seeds, but also knowledge. And it is incredible. You know, it is, there's no money involved. It's only the seeds. For thousands of years, corn has been an important part of the cosmologies of many of these communities. In the land that's now known as Oaxaca, groups such as the Zapotec and Mixtec honored corn deities. Many families continue this practice with corn altars today. The feria is intentionally held in a place known for ancient ties to corn. The name of the village is Ejido Union Zapata, and it is a very strategic place where the, the feria is made because just like a few meters are the caves of Gilana Kids, where the old vestiges of corn were found in the late 60s. Corn cob fragments from the caves of Gilana Kids are said to be the earliest documented evidence for the domestication of corn. The feria is just one example of how spiritual ties to corn have shaped the way that local farmers grow their produce. Yira and Jonathan also just finished working on a documentary called Los Guardianes del Maíz. The documentary demonstrates the profound spiritual relationship between Zapotec, Mixtec, and Chinantec peoples with the corn they inherited from their ancestors. 
Here's Jonathan. If your survival depends on something, then you're going to have a very, very close relationship with it. And most of the people we speak with, whether they be Chinantecos, whether they be Mixtecos from the Mixteca Alta or the Mixteca Baja, whether they be Costeños, they will always tell you that corn is like their family. Corn is their family. You treat corn like you would treat your family. For some of the families, corn is either the mother or their children. And they take care of that corn with their heart. Corn's sacred cultural role has led to the preservation of a diversity of species. Each one is tied to a family's unique history with the corn and with their land. Every single corn represents a family. So there are, you know, there are thousands of corn at the end of the day. And uh, every family, they plant the seeds that they have planted for many generations. Corn, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's life. You can find out more about Yira and Jonathan's work, including the documentary Los Guardianes del Maíz, in our show notes. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Sasha Cohen, Ryder Bell, Kevin Chang Barnum, Sophia Lebowitz, and Maya bernstein Shallot. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say, hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>